0: Log Talk Radio.
1: B.I.B.L.E., that's the book for me. B.I.B.L.E., that's the book.
2: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we'd like to send you a free booklet by John called Is It Real? It's all about helping you answer the vital question, is my salvation the real thing? Request your free booklet by writing to real at gty.org. That's real at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through June of 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. We come again to
3: the Word of God and to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians has been a foundational letter for the church in every age since the New Testament time in which it was written. And so we have spent a number of months going through this very, very important letter from the Apostle Paul, not only to the church at Ephesus, but to every church throughout the history of the church in the world. So much here is vital for us to understand. And we come now to verses seven to 16. Verses seven to 16 in the fourth chapter. And my curiosity drove me to uh, do a little bit of uh, study to try to find out what the contemporary evangelical church says are the measures of a church's success. And uh, so I read through a lot of material, and I basically came up with the following lists that are offered as measures of a church's success. Things like this. The ability to grab attention. Provision of entertaining experiences money to fund projects and events, large, well-equipped facilities, creative, innovative programs, attractive media, cultural influence, large crowds. By then I was crying for mercy. (laughs) Those have nothing to do with the measure of a church and yet they are offered to this generation. I want to show you what the measure of a church is, how you evaluate a church's authenticity by having you follow as I read Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. And I'll read down to verse 16. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, And some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, clearly, the high point of that text is in verse 13. And there it says that the measure of the church is the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's only one way to measure a church, and that is its Christ-likeness. Again, that makes the duty of the church, verse 15, to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. The measure of a church is its Christ-likeness. Now, we've been talking a lot about unity since the beginning of chapter 2, really. We've been talking about how important the unity of the faith is, and we see it again in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And how is the unity of the faith there described? As the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the unity of our faith is a common Christ-likeness. Remember, the theme here is unity. There are virtues that work toward unity. We saw them in verse 2 and 3, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those are the kinds of attitudes that it takes to produce the unity of the church. And unity is the way the church was designed from the beginning because verse 4, 5, and 6 says there's one body or one church, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Theological unity is the foundation of the church. The church is based on divine truth, common divine truth, the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. That is the foundation of unity. The goal of unity is the measure of the stature of Christ. So how does this work? How can we attain this kind of unity of Christ-likeness? What's the pathway to that? It may at first seem a little bit contradictory. We're supposed to be united. We're supposed to be one. Everything about us is one. So how do we express that oneness with so many different people? And the answer is that our unity is found in our diversity. That may seem counterintuitive, but it is precisely the truth, and the illustration for it is... Down in verse 13, again, it is the unity of the faith, the unity of maturity, and the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're all headed toward Christ-likeness, and it works like a body. Verse 12 ends with the body of Christ. Verse 16 talks about the whole body, the building up of the body, the growth of the body. So Paul's image here is is of a body. Down in verse 16, he even talks about each and every joint and the proper working of each individual part which causes the growth of the body. So we have a very simple illustration, body, the body of a human being functions well when all the individual components that make up that body function well. If uh, something's wrong with a functioning organ on the inside or a functioning limb on the outside or something in the brain, whatever it might be, the body is in a sense of dysfunction. So we understand the illustration like a body, you have to have all the component parts to have one whole healthy body. And that's how the church works. Our unity is found in our diversity. Our unity is found in our diversity. All the various people with all their uniqueness, functioning in diverse ways, contribute to the unity of the church. Like. All the features of a human body contribute to the united functioning of a human being. So the key to unity is diversity. That's a popular word these days. And I read an article this week uh, that was very interesting. This from a pastor of a large Southern Baptist church in Orlando, Florida, who was trying to describe the diversity of the church. And I'm quoting, We have a diverse, welcoming, multicultural gathering of people. We have transgender, LGBTQ, straight, single, married, divorced, and cohabitating people. They're uh, all attending together. They attend, they listen, they serve, they grow, and they give. We have Democrats, Republicans, Independents, and non-registered people. We have documented and undocumented people. We have pro-life and pro-choice people. We support the blue and black Lives Matter sitting together and serving together. We have Trumpers and never-Trumpers. We have Biden and Harris supporters. And I was out of breath at that point. That is the most absurd understanding of the diversity of the church that I have ever seen in my entire life. The diversity of the church doesn't come from collection of sins, personal experiences, and political viewpoints. What what is the source of the diversity of the church? Let's look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each one of us, as individual believers, grace was given in the form of a gift from Christ. Now. If you understand anything about grace, you know that grace gives, right? God gives by grace. You can't talk about grace without talking about giving. God's grace always gives. It is the nature of divine grace to give. Grace gives what is necessary, what is needed, but what is undeserved. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, we all understand that grace and peace in verse 2 have been granted us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that grace do? It blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. He graces us so that we will praise His grace and give Him glory. At the end of verse 7, it says that His grace is rich. And verse 8, He lavishes it on us. Now, we understand that at salvation, we receive saving grace. This is far more than that. This is the grace of all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 5 speaks about us being saved by grace. Chapter 2 at the end of verse 5, By grace you have been saved. And then it's repeated again in verse 8, By grace you have been saved. That's saving grace. But go over to chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8. Paul, talking about his call to ministry, said he was made a minister, in verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So, he received saving grace, we understand that, but he also received the gift of grace that defined his ministry. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And what we just read in the fourth chapter in verse 7, <clears throat> is that God's grace gives every one of us a gift for the sake of the building of the body of Christ. Paul's ministry was a gift of grace. Paul says in this letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. Not only what I am as a believer, but what I am as a minister. I was given saving grace and then on top of that, that saving grace lavished me with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And on top of that, that grace gave me a gift to function within the church so that I would be part of the necessary operation of the spirit through the multiple gifts to build the church into Christ likeness. This grace really is God giving Himself. This grace doesn't come to us apart from God. This grace comes to us because God comes to us. And and Paul has made that absolutely clear. Go go back to chapter 1 again. At the end of the chapter, we're talking here about Christ and it says concerning Him, he's, verse 22, He's the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So the grace comes because the Lord comes. He fills His church. In uh, chapter 2, at the end of that chapter, verses 21 and 22, it says we are a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So in chapter 1 at the end, Christ is in us, the fullness of Him. In chapter 2 at the end, the Spirit is in us. Look at the end of chapter 3. And here we find verses 20 and 21. Now. To Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen." And again, this encompasses the whole Trinity. Christ is in us. The Spirit is in us. And God Himself is in us to whom that very prayer is directed. Grace is God giving Himself. That's the idea. You are the temple of the Spirit of God. Christ dwells in you. God has set up His abode in you. And with His coming is not only the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, the virtues that are a part of the inheritance of the believer by the power of the Spirit. But what comes is illumination to understand the Word of God. But on top of that comes this special grace mentioned in verse 7 of chapter 4 which grants us a gift. A gift. A gift is literally measured out to us for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. As part of His self-giving The Lord gives two kinds of gifts. The first one we're going to look at this morning is the gifts that He gives each Christian, each individual Christian. Then next week we'll come down to verse 11 and look at the gifts He gives the whole church. First the gifts He gives to every believer, then the gifts He gives to the whole church. But let's look at the the individual believer in verses 7 to 10. And here we see the divine diversity necessary for unity. Now remember what I've said. The, the subject here is, is unity. That has been Paul's theme since chapter 2. And he wraps it up in a sense with the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Then verse 7 begins with, but, <clears throat> and that's used in an adversative way. In spite of everything that's been said about unity, on the other hand, on the other hand, we have been given grace, each one of us, in a unique way so that we function in diversity that produces this unity. Notice the word measure there. The measure of Christ's gift. That's metron in the Greek, metrics. The idea is the Lord gives every believer a specific portion, a specific unit of gifting so that he can contribute to the building of the body of Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If you look at it down in verse 16, it's broken down into every joint and each individual part. The key to unity in the church is diversity, not political diversity, not sinful diversity, not ethnic diversity, not any of that. It's all irrelevant. The diversity we're talking about here is the diversity of gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, there are some comparative passages that will help illuminate this for us. Go to Romans 12, and I don't intend to discuss all of the different kinds of gifts, but rather to give you the, the big picture. So in Romans chapter 12, we probably ought to start at verse 3, and you'll see the uh, relationship again with grace and gifting. Verse 3 of Romans 12, For through the grace, there it is, grace again, given to me. Again, this is the, this is the gifting by grace. I say to everyone not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now we had a measure of grace in Ephesians, now we have a measure of faith. God sort of metrically gives us by grace a gift, and then He measures out an equal amount of faith to operate that gift. And that's how you ought to view yourself. You ought not to think more highly of yourself than is consistent with your gifts. You ought to rightly assess your gifts. You need to have sound judgment as God has allotted to you a gift by grace that can function in the body of Christ to build the church into Christlikeness by a measure of faith that He also provides. He talks further in verse 4, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function. It's the same analogy, same picture. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Again, folks, this comes every time we talk about gifts, we're talking about grace. You don't earn them. They're not built into you. They're not hardwired in your human disposition. We're not talking about talents. We're not talking about some kind of manual skill or the ability to do math or something like that. This is a grace gift. This transcends what you got when you arrived into this world, hardwired into the way you were made. This is something supernatural, something that comes only at the point of salvation. A measured gift and a measure of faith, and we are to exercise that gift according to that faith. So. He gets very specific in verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, there's that grace, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So if you have been given a measure of the grace to preach or prophesy, speak, forth, then do it according to the proportion of your faith. Do it to the degree that the Lord gives you the faith to do it. If uh, if you wonder whether you have the ability to stand up in front of a large crowd and preach but you know you can't stand in front of three people without becoming a nervous wreck that's probably not the proportion of faith you need to operate that gift. So the Lord matches up the the power with the gift. So whatever your gift is, you do that. If it's if it's preaching or proclaiming truth do it if it's serving then serve if it's teaching then teach in verse 8 if it's exhortation then exhort if it's giving then give with liberality if it's leading then lead with diligence if it's showing mercy then do it with cheerfulness so these are not absolute categories of uh, giftedness that could be sort of narrowed down and defined This is just very, very general. Preaching, serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, showing mercy, compassion. Those are just broad categories in which everybody is unique. Everybody is like a spiritual snowflake because you're all different. But those would be categories in which the gifts operate. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This also is a helpful portion of Scripture. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Again, this is the same exact teaching that we saw in Romans and Ephesians. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God. You see the Trinity there? The Spirit in verse 4, the Lord in verse 5, and God in verse 6. They're all resident in the believer and they're all operating in the believer to make that believer effective in contributing to the growth of the church. And the ministries are many and the varieties are many and the effects are many. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And this is how you have to see your gift. It's for the common good. Your gift is not for you. It's not for you. It's for all of us. My gift is not for me. My gift is for you. This is how I serve you. Your gift is how you serve others. It's for the common good. That's where you have to understand that your service is vital. Um, You hear people say, well, I love Jesus, but I, I don't like the church. So you think that you possess all on your own everything necessary for you to become like Christ by yourself. That is a sad delusion. You don't know how much you need one another. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We gather and we stimulate one another to love and good works. We need each other the same way a body needs all its component parts. The the church is not just to be a spectator event. For for many churches, it is that. It's, It's just a show. And nobody has to do anything but show up, give your money, join the party. True believers in an environment like that languish terribly because there's not an understanding of the vitality and critical nature of people using their gifts. Verse 8 gives us some suggested categories of gifts. The word of wisdom, some providing wisdom through the Spirit. Knowledge, also through the Spirit faith. People who just operate with a higher level of faith and trust usually shows up in intense commitment to prayer. That also by the same Spirit. And then in the apostolic era, there were gifts of healing by the Spirit. There were miracles by the Spirit. There was prophecy by the Spirit. There was discernment by the Spirit. There were various kinds of languages and interpretation. But it was one and the same Spirit working all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So, this is how the body works, okay? You come into the body of Christ. The Spirit takes up residence in your life and grants you from heaven, from heaven itself, as a grace gift, a place and a way to function effectively in the body of Christ. So that you make a contribution to everyone else, so that the body grows into Christ-likeness. We know what the Spirit does. What what did Jesus say? When the Spirit comes, He will point to Me. And that's the work of the Spirit in your heart, 2 Corinthians 3.18. As you gaze at the glory of the Lord. You're changed into His image from one level of glory to the next by the Holy Spirit. So the the church collectively is not going to be Christ-like unless the individuals in it are Christ-like. that is the work of the Spirit. Now again, the listing here is not airtight categories. It's just a general reflection of the fact that there are varieties and varieties and varieties. And here are some samples. There are as many varieties as there are people. You say, well, how do I know what my gift is? It may be the combination of a lot of these various categories. How do you know what your gift is? What do you love to do when you're walking in the Spirit? And what do you do that gives you joy and blesses other people? You can follow the prompting of the Spirit in your heart if you keep saying to yourself, I think I'm supposed to be a preacher, and everybody who's heard you says, no, you're not. (laughs) You probably ought to go down the box to the next opportunity. But there there will be both a confirmation in your own heart, an affirmation in your own heart, and in the hearts of all those people who know you and see how you serve. Again, you, you lose your life in serving others when this gift operates. That's how the body works. That's down in verse 12. The body is one, yet has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. There we are again. The whole idea of this is when the church functions as the church, when it functions in the measure of its gifts with the measure of faith under the power of the Holy Spirit, it becomes like Christ, and that's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's the only way to judge a church, special gifts measured out to us by grace in addition to our human talents and intersecting with them for sure, but employed by the power of the Spirit and the measure of faith. An illustration of the reality of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it's important, because I believe that the Lord gifts people not just in the body of Christ universally. But in local churches. I, b- I believe in Grace Community Church, the Spirit of God has dispersed grace gifts through this church to every one of you to bring this church to Christ's likeness. And I, I say that because of 1 Corinthians 1. You might have assumed that, that somehow the Corinthian church got missed. They were so filled with problems. But even with all their problems, and Paul wrote four letters to them, two of them are in the New Testament. He says this in chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. There we are with that grace again. Not just the grace of salvation, but the grace, verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in Him, and that would be all the riches of grace from Ephesians 1, in all speech and all knowledge. Oh, now we're talking about gifts. You've been enriched even to the degree of knowledge and to be able to communicate that knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. And then this amazing statement, so that you are not lacking in any gift. The Lord is saying that to this very troubled church. The Spirit of God has dispensed among you with a measure of grace, a gift to everyone, and a measure of faith for everyone to operate in that gift so that the church would become like Christ, you lack no gift. And it will be that way until the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the way you evaluate a church is whether that church is Christ-like because the people in that church with a measure of grace and a measure of faith, are faithfully serving one another. This is not about a a spectator event. This is the divinely designed diversity that produces unity. John Calvin said, No member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfections as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. You can't do it on your own. If you're struggling as a Christian, the tendency is to stay away from the church when the reality is you're probably struggling because you're not there. And there are huge areas of your life where people need to minister their gifts to strengthen you, but you're not around. That is one of the most absurd things that I hear. I love Jesus. I don't like the church. You can't love Christ and not love the church He loved and died to save. And you can't be a Christian who is effective unless you are being ministered to effectively by all the gifts poured out in the church. And again, if the church is nothing but a smoke and light show and a a concert, and you attend the event and that's it, that's really never. Going to produce spiritual growth. And that's not going to be a church that manifests Christ. So these gifts are inseparable then from the presence of the Trinity in us. And when we use these gifts, the sum of them is the church begins to look like Christ. Now Paul does something very, very special here, back to Ephesians 4. Having said what he did in verse 7, he then uses an Old Testament passage to make his point. And I'll pick it up in verse 8, therefore, therefore, in other words, connected to the point I've just made. I want you to understand that every believer, by grace, was given a gift from Christ measured out for that individual to build the body of Christ. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And I know you're saying to yourself, well, what does that have to do with whatever he's talking about? I'll tell you what it has to do with everything. This shows us the cost, market, the cost for Christ to give you the gift. You can't take it lightly. That, that, that's what Paul's going to show us. You you may at this particular point not have any functioning role in the church. This will come to you as a a shock, no doubt. But the Lord paid an astonishing price to be able to gift you so that you for the common good could help build the church into Christ's likeness for the glory of the One who paid the price. So let's go back to verse 8. You'll notice if you have a a Bible that identifies an Old Testament quote that this is taken from Psalm 68. So Paul is quoting Psalm 68. Now, Psalm 68, this is verse 18 in Psalm 68. In in Psalm 68, you have what I guess you could call a sort of a a triumphant, victorious psalm. A triumphant, victorious psalm. Uh, a, A victory hymn, maybe a better way to say it, composed by David to celebrate God conquering the Jebusite city and establishing the Ark of the Covenant on Mount Zion. The historical discussion of that is in 2 Samuel 6 and 7 and 1 Chronicles 13. So when the people of God came into the land. Jerusalem was a Jebusite city, a pagan city. God conquered the Jebusite city. Symbolically, the Ark of the Covenant was taken to the pinnacle of that city, Mount Zion. And God was the conqueror of that city, and it became Jerusalem. This is what kings did in ancient times. When they conquered, they went to a high point and declared their triumph. And this. 68th Psalm is a triumphal hymn to honor God who conquered the city and ascended to reign over it. This was pretty common in ancient history. There would be generals who would go out and win a war and they would come back. And the Romans used to call it a triumph, a triumph parade. The general would come back and he would bring with him the spoils of victory. There would be whatever the gained of the valuable things in that country represented by symbols of that value there would be prisoners uh, that they would bring back from the captive country they would bring back their own soldiers who had been imprisoned by the enemy and were set free and they would all parade through the streets of the city to the highest point of the city that's what they did that's what the roman generals did It wouldn't be much different for any other nation in ancient times. An Israelite king would parade into Jerusalem in a victory parade bringing some of the captives with him and some of the spoils, and he would go to Mount Zion, which was the pinnacle. There would be victorious soldiers and there would be the soldiers that the enemy had taken prisoner that then were recaptured by the king that owned them and had a right to them And all of this would be a parade of triumph through the city. That's the picture here. Christ is pictured. He, verse 9, He ascended. He ascended. He ascended on high according to Psalm 68. He went to the high place. Christ did this as a triumphant general. He ascended on high. This picks the triumphant Christ returning from the battle on earth. And what does He do? He brings with Him, essentially, the trophies of His conquest. It's a picture of the Son of God ascending, triumphant to His throne. But, verse 9 says, this expression, He ascended, what does it mean? except that He also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He can't ascend unless He's descended. And that's exactly what this is saying to us. It's very powerful. I want you to notice one phrase, the lower parts of the earth. Before He went far above all the heavens, in verse 10, He went into the lower parts of the earth. What, what does that mean? Well, essentially, it's a, it's a dramatic, dramatic statement. It's used four other places in Scripture, very instructively. It's used in Psalm 63.9. And there, ascending to the lower parts of the earth, had to do with death by murder, death by execution. It's also used similar phrase in Matthew 12.40, the heart of the earth, and it refers to the story of Jonah. And it refers to Jonah being in the belly of the fish. It's used in Isaiah 44.23 to refer to the created earth and it's used one more place, Psalm 139.15, to speak about a womb, a child in the womb. Interestingly enough, those are the only other four uses of it, and they all have a connection to Christ. It's, it's really amazing. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. He was formed in the womb, Psalm 139. He lived on the earth, Isaiah 44. He was buried in a grave parallel to Jonah in the belly of the fish, and His death was an execution. That that very phrase points directly to Christ. Why all this? Because Paul wants us to understand the price He paid to be able to gift you. He had to be formed in the womb, live on earth, suffer all that He did, be executed, and be buried in order that He might ascend triumphantly to heaven. And only when He went back to heaven in triumph could He give gifts to men. He went back, verse 8, borrowing again from Psalm 68, He led captive a host of captives. In His descent into the earth, in His life and death and burial and resurrection, He took captive, you could say, the elect of God and took them or their their right to heaven. He captured all who would ever live who were part of the elect. He won their right to be brought to God and to His kingdom because they belonged to Him. And then He gave gifts to men. He couldn't pass out the spiritual gifts until He entered into heaven at His ascension. Like a triumphant, conquering hero, He goes back with all the spoils, He arrives and is honored as the triumphant King, and then He begins to disperse the treasures. The point is this. Your gifts didn't come easy, did they? The spoils that turn into the gifts of grace to each of us were won with a massive battle against Satan and a willingness to bear divine wrath. He ascended and He gave the gifts because He had descended and won the right to be called Lord. So when you think about the gift that you have, you should treasure that gift. He purchased that gift with His own life. End of verse 10. When He ascended far above all heavens, so that He might fill all things. He went back triumphant. His glorious presence and power is expressed in universal sovereignty. But I don't think that's the main idea. I think this is just a repeat of chapter 1, verse 23. His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. He went back to disperse the gifts that allowed Him to fill all things, yes, of course, in sovereign. Omnipresence, but more significantly, He fills His body, the church, with His presence and power and gifts to manifest His glory in the church. So consider the the grace of Christ in giving you salvation and giving you a gift to serve in His glorious church for His honor. Closing word from Peter. First Peter 1. Uh, 1 Peter 4, rather, verse 10 and 11. Here's the application. As each one has received a gift, each one, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There is grace again. Manifold grace. Varieties of grace have bestowed on every one of us a gift. Employ it in serving one another. It's not for you, it's for them. That's your stewardship. The cost was immense to provide that for you. And then Peter breaks the gifts into two simple categories. Some speaking gifts and some serving gifts. Whoever speaks, do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves, do it as one serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, what is the end of this in the church? God may be glorified through whom? Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, Peter understands that the gifts, when they're used in the church, in the strength which God supplies, bring glory to Jesus Christ, which glory will redound forever and ever. And he says, Amen. That's the measure of the church. And that's what we strive for. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your revelation to us. So much more to say about this, but this is the starting point for us to recognize that You have given us a gift, and it was a costly one. You have brought us to Yourself. You have granted us eternal salvation, and then You have gifted us for the time that we're here on earth to build up Your church to be like Christ. That is the measure of a church so that by that testimony of a Christ-like church, you can continue to gather in the elect who belong to You. We are so privileged, privileged to receive and privileged to give, privileged to receive salvation with no effort of our own, privileged to serve, making every effort to use the Spirit-empowered gift You've given to us, all of it for Your glory alone. Amen.
4: big wall it stood between you and God but then Jesus Christ came and paid it all when I looked
5: And now we can pray to our Father in heaven above We can come to our God at any time of the day and He'll receive us so great His love He wants us to talk to Him with a sense of heart and rejoice when we're really glad And when it seems like things are falling apart We can pray when we're feeling sad And when we do bad things, we confess our sins We can pray all alone or with our friends because of Jesus
6: trust ourselves. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Many people believe their feelings determine truth. They rely on how they think and feel about something for what's right and wrong. But are our feelings a good source of truth? Well, not at all. The Bible tells us our hearts are deceitful and can't be trusted. You see, every single one of us is a sinner with a sinful heart. The Bible says, apart from Christ, we love darkness rather than light. And even those who have turned to Christ still struggle with the flesh. So no, our feelings are a terrible guide. Instead, we should look to the unchanging word of God. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and it's the knowledge of God that's the beginning of wisdom.
0: Discover more about science, the Bible, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com I love to tell the
1: story It will be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love.
6: Bible our foundation this is Ken Ham CEO of the Noah's Ark attraction the Ark encounter south of Cincinnati what's your foundation okay what do I mean by that well we all have an ultimate authority something we base our thinking on and interpret the world through for many people that standard is themselves their own wisdom or feelings but we can't trust our simple hearts they'll quickly lead us astray Instead, we must start our thinking with the ultimate authority, the Word of God. God's perfect, flawless, unchanging Word should be our starting point. That means we build our worldview from God's Word and we test our own thoughts, opinions and feelings against God's Word to see if they're right or wrong. We're not the authority, God is.
0: Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com. Travel here to tour the life-size Ark, visit the zoo, and more. Go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, a mighty fortress.
4: A mighty fortress.
6: upside-down thinking. This is Ken Ham, author of the new commentary and devotional on Genesis, Creation to Babel. Why do we need the Word of God so much? Well, consider that we all have sinful hearts. We typically want what's wrong, not what's right. As the book of John says, we love darkness rather than light. So we need the Bible because it's the truth and it illuminates our sinful hearts. So much of the Bible is what you could call upside-down thinking. It's totally opposite how we naturally think. For example, we're called to love our enemies, forgive and trust God for vengeance. We're to do good even to those who hate us. As Christians, we need the Word of God to shape our thinking so we think and act as God would have us, not like the world.
0: Discover more about God's Word, science, and the Bible when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com
4: Yeah, He made us all, you Yeah, God made us all, you God made me and you Yeah. God made us. God made me and you. Yeah, yeah. God made me and you. For joy, y'all. For our joy yeah. and for His glory. For glory. God made me and you. Yeah, yeah. God made me and you. Uh, come on, just is two are never the same each person is different unique in their frame God made them all each kind and each sport he made some people tall and some people short dark skin light skin and all in between in each color and shade his beauty is seen the Lord knows the number of hairs on your head whether brown or black whether blonde gray or red what some call ethnicity and others call race we should celebrate as a gift of God's grace you're wonderfully made from your feet to your face yep God made me and you Let's go. All yeah. We see what God's love is about. There's no type of person that Jesus left out. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, all those who trust in the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation. Chapter number seven, the church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds. Through each, the glory of the Lord's gonna shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go. No, we all uh. have an interesting story. And different shades All and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God
5: made
4: me and you So all of value, all are lost, All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cross God made me
5: and
4: you Different colors and different shades All differently and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display.
5: God made me and you
4: we're all about value, all are lost All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the
6: cross God made me and you We all have an authority This is Ken Ham, editor of the apologetic series of books, The New Answers Books Why do you believe what you believe? Whether you believe the Bible is true or not, you believe that because of some kind of authority is that authority yourself. For many people, that's their ultimate authority, themselves. But we don't know everything. We frequently make mistakes. Putting ourselves as the ultimate authority means we're trusting in an ever-changing authority and with very limited knowledge. As we presented our Creation Museum, we should look to God's Word as our ultimate authority. You see, God is the only one who knows everything. He never makes a mistake. He's always been there. We can trust God and His Word.
0: Find resources to equip and encourage you in your faith when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and view a complete transcript when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
4: of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. The big surprise God had up his sleeve On day number six created Adam and Eve Made in the image of the beautiful Most High God told them, be fruitful and multiply Everything's yours, but that tree do not try Cause in the day you eat it, you're surely gonna die I'm sure you know the rest Yes, they failed the test And ever since then, the world has been a big mess So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this There's only one hero and his name is Jesus
6: Jesus is the truth. This is Ken Ham inviting your family to visit the popular Ark Encounter south of Cincinnati. Many people today believe truth is relative and it changes depending on the circumstances or on personal feelings. But truth isn't relative because truth is a person, Jesus. He said that he's the way, the truth, and the life. So if Jesus is the truth, we can't just believe whatever we want. There's a standard for truth and it doesn't change. Now, how do we know anything about Jesus? Well, by reading His Word. Lots of people have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is, but Jesus has revealed Himself to us through His Word. If we want to personally know the truth, we must turn from our sins, trust in Christ, and obey His Word.
0: There's so much more to discover about the Bible when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com.
7: Uh What is Lent? Well, it's a period of fasting between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday that lasts 46 days, or 40 days not counting Sundays, started by the Roman Catholic Church after the 4th century. Ever since then, the rules of Lent have been in constant flux. It used to be that Easter was for baptism, and those who were going to be baptized would fast at their own discretion. After the Council of Nicaea, the Church began to formalize traditions, and it became that the leaders of the Church were supposed to fast 40 days in preparation for Holy Week. But in the 5th century, Catholicism replaced believers' baptism with infant baptism. And Pope Leo said that everyone must fulfill with their fast the apostolic institution of the 40 days, claiming that Lent was something the apostles came up with. After Lent became about fasting rather than baptism and spread from the leaders to the laity, then came the dietary laws, like abstaining from meat and dairy, but fish was okay. Canadians ate beaver because it lived in water, and that qualified it as a fish. By the 20th century, you could exchange meat for anything, like fasting from your cell phone or chocolate or Facebook. What does the Bible say about Lent? Nothing. The Roman Catholic Church just likes to make stuff up. But Jesus did say this about fasting. When you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites who want their fasting to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Instead, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and he will reward you. So maybe what you need to give up for Lent is Lent when we understand the text.
8: Is playing the stock market considered gambling? By some, it certainly is. By others, no problem. How does a Christian decide? We run to the Bible. What are the explicit verses about gambling? Well, we are not to be bad stewards. We are not to treat money recklessly. We're not to engage in get-rich-quick schemes. Question, does that describe the stock market? Some would say, yeah. Others would say, not so much. I would tend to lean toward the latter position if it is a mitigated risk. It is a considered risk. It is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It is not something that you just need to have and it's become an idol for you. I don't think it's any riskier necessarily than engaging in virtually any other commerce. Let's just say you decide to start a business. You are going to shoe horses. Hey, that still happens. What do you need to do? You need to invest money. You need to perhaps employ people. You've got to get the insurance, register with the state. There's an outlay of cash. Is there a guarantee that your shoeing business is going to succeed? No, so it's a risk, but you've thought it through. You've been wise. You've studied the subject. You've maybe worked at other horseshoeing shops, and you've seen, yep, yeah, this is going to work. Therefore, you pull the trigger without any concerns of conscience. I would suggest to you the same thing can be true of investing in the stock market. If it's one of those things where it's like, hey, get in on this deal, and you're going to be a billionaire, oh, you need to be wise. And we always need to guard our hearts hearts gambling is something that tends to be a longing for getting a lot of money quickly and easily it tends to really revolve around idolatry but that doesn't mean that investing in the stock market can have that same component if our hearts are longing for the same things if they're not i think you're good to go would church history agree with me depends on which part of church history you're speaking about but i actually suspect they wouldn't (laughs) and that needs to be considered why because it really wasn't until the medicis and the financial systems that they incorporated in italy did the idea of commerce and money making money even become a concept so i suspect Until at least that time, and until our society became more sophisticated with commerce, with trade, with currency, with investing, it would have seemed like a wild scheme that the Christian should have no part of. Is it possible that time has caused me to have a watered-down understanding of the subject? Or is it possible that the saints of old maybe not understanding how a culture can work and how money can make money and it actually is somehow contributing to our society just like the guy who puts shoes on the horse's feet people who invest money they help corporations it makes more widgets the quality of life for human beings goes up and so it does play a role in the machinery of economy maybe that wasn't understood as well by the saints of old and we just have a Better understanding of it. Maybe. So, what ultimately is the bottom line on this subject? I would suggest to you it's a conscience issue. There are going to be some Christians, and and I know there are some Christians who won't do it because they do think it's gambling. They also fear that they're investing in corporations that are doing bad things. Another genuine consideration for the Christian. Others, no problem. Some problem. This would be one of those subjects. I think we need to put under the column of Adi Athara.
7: In Second Chronicles seven fourteen, God has said, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This verse is often used to call for a national day of prayer. If an entire nation would just pray, everything will be right again, right? The Bible tells all people everywhere to repent. Christ will return to judge the nations, bow the knee before that day comes. Until then, wouldn't God bless a nation who feared him and obeyed the Bible? Yes, but that's not what Second Chronicles 7.14 is about. After King Solomon, son of David, built the temple of God in Jerusalem, he asked God to bless the house he had built. Then fire came down from heaven, and the glory of God filled the temple. All of Israel feasted for seven days. The Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. And there we have verse 14. God's answer called to mind the covenant he made with Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. God promised to prosper Israel as long as they obeyed him, and he would curse them if they did not. He blessed Israel through the land he gave them. But there's no nation on earth today God is in covenant with to bless them through their land. God's people are those who believe in his son, Jesus, who made a new covenant by his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Turn from your wicked ways to Jesus Christ, and he will forgive you. All who are in Christ have been made a holy nation, not with an earthly land, but we have been promised a better country, that is, a heavenly one, when we understand the text.
8: From Mark, where is the line with cancel culture, and who gets to decide? <laughs> That's a good question these days, considering the world loves canceling people It is not Christian to participate in cancel culture, an unloving, unforgiving act that has no understanding of what's that word? Oh, yeah, maturity. Even Justin Bieber got this right on his Christian album, asking people, Can't can't we recognize that sometimes people mature and they once said or did something dumb, but now they're older and they've grown? Have we no room for maturity? The answer, Justin, is no. No, the world does not. The world is ice cold toward one another. We live in an era where the social media
9: rules
8: get to determine who's in, Who's out based on the current contemporary winds that are blowing? What is politically correct and what is not? And they will cancel you in a heartbeat, even if they used to adore you. What a reminder about the callous nature of our culture. A celebrity who was adored. They were a child star, but they grow up. They've got drug problems. <laughs> cancel why because the world is cold and lacking love but perhaps you're thinking hey wait a second don't christians have a cancel culture called church discipline the answer is no cancel culture is identifying something that doesn't align with whatever is the contemporary zeitgeist and just Doxing somebody, knocking them off social media, making them look like idiots, making their life miserable, helping them to lose their jobs, that's cancel culture. That has nothing to do with church discipline, which is actually all about
9: forgiveness.
8: Remember, the goal of church discipline is not to throw somebody out on their ear. It is that somebody would see what is sinful and not defined by culture, but defined by God and his word. And repent. And the most loving thing that we can do is apply church discipline to somebody who is straying to bring them back into the fold. That is the goal of church discipline. We should feel that difference. Cancer culture says, we're done with you, child star. We once were amused by you, and now we find our amusement by just trashing you. That is not church discipline, which is identifying somebody who is sinning and loving them so much, we warn them, please turn from your sins, or you are going to be identifying yourself as an unbeliever, and you will be, in essence, setting yourself outside of the camp, and we'll do it because of church discipline. We want people to in cancel culture says you out of here one is loving the other one is foreigner like cold as ice the world will tell you that christians are the mean ones i gotta tell you something cancel culture alone tells me oh no it is the world that is loveless <laughs>
10: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook Like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M, truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, Then, Told Radio. That is, T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S a-N-D-S-T-U-F-S dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Hey
4: yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We're just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go! Ben, Love the Son of Man. Trust Jesus is alive and His people He'll revive and His fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, uh, hands up. Uh, does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust Jesus is the King, so His people we will sing and forever say, "Worthy is the Lamb." What's up? Surprise, no surprise. His death burial and resurrection resurrection. More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary, took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame Is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice Let's rise our master Christ and rise Rise. in the afterlife
9: What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise When Christ came to save dudes who hate truth The gospel is not fake news the gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed, let us we got the medicine It's still human emergency, the serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, stand, up If you truly love the Son of Man Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hand up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust, Jesus is the King, so his people we to my composition. Lots of rhythm but not tradition, no kind of different. But God consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he must cripple
4: his opposition. It's not some fiction I'm spitting, the Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proper vision is not sufficient, we drop mission. Not to this, but the Word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shot Condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction Against the backdrop of our prediction, the gospel glistens A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition Stand up, hand up, if you truly love the Son of Man Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it, they hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself, they say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself, what I gotta say almost feels too real estate, sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate, cause yo, Jesus Christ got me into real estate, I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate, if the father wasn't gracious, no synonym, again, he came straight blameless, no synonym, again, has been the same since, no synonym, again, Fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in them. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder and still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent? Let the world still Jesus. When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he will revive and his fame is gonna spread across the
1: land.
11: what's up? Welcome to the one minute, one minute Apology. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Frank, what's the one question that every believer should ask an unbeliever? I think the question is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Because that clears away all the smoke screens that people have. If a person hesitates at all when you ask them that question, the problem isn't purely intellectual. They don't want it to be true. I ask this question on college campuses all the time, Bobby. I say, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Of atheists who are standing in the question line and are getting a little hostile with me. And on three occasions in the past two years, I've had atheists yell back at me, no! I said, no, wait, why are we even here? Why don't we just go have pizza? What do you mean? No. I said, wait, you claim to be an atheist, a beacon of reason. Never mind if atheism is true, reason doesn't exist because we're just molecules in motion. But let's leave that aside. I ask you, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian and you say no? How's that reasonable? How's that rational? It's not. They don't want it to be true, and usually they don't want it to be true because they don't want to have any moral accountability to anyone. They just want to do their own thing. In fact, um, I have an article on this on our website called Sleeping with Your Girlfriend. And the implication of it is Quite frequently, atheists want to be atheists because they don't want the moral accountability or the moral restraints that they perceive Christianity puts on them.
3: So they're not in pursuit
12: of truth after all.
11: Many are not. No, they're not. In fact, let me add one other thing. I was at the University of Maryland not long ago, and I was talking to an atheist afterward, and I asked the atheist if he'd even read the Gospels, and he was flummoxed. He never read them, Bobby. And I said, look, I don't care where you are in terms of your religious upbringing or what your thoughts are. Jesus Christ was the most influential human being in history. Don't tell me you're on a search for truth if you have not even looked into what he allegedly has said. You're not on a search for truth. You're on a a quest to suppress the truth. How could you not look into the most influential human being in history if you're on a search for truth?
4: They don't come close to understand it, how you can go from most demanded, to abandoned in the ocean stranded, surrounded by the waves of your weariness, some things you only learn from age and experience, and it's plain to me that all the famous men you see, the time is coming when they will be a faded memory, cause one day you hot, the next day you not, one day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah, what in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the standard of time sink in. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah. Better plan for the future, kid. Time catches up to everyone, no matter who yeah. it is. Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they want to know. Eventually we learn that they all come and go. Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars. Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up. Right your mind thinking you couldn't see the sand of time sinking because one day you hot the next day you not one day you on top next day you get dropped yeah better plan for the future kid time catches up to everyone no matter who it is what i'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few even no experience to tell you that it's true on your radio station this won't be found on the playlist wisdom the sound of the stages resounded for ages the older i get i notice it the whole of the script hmm, it's found in the pages, a holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverend, but what a man sees under heaven, Ecclesiastes 111. No matter who you are, death aims to stop you, whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra. Before your time is done, meet the timeless one, the dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun. King Jesus, astounding amazes, he pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages. So let us praise the one who made the Everglades. Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll never Never feed, never feed, never feed, never feed.
13: Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you
9: will never change. Beautiful,
12: beautiful, you never change, never change. Welcome to the One Minute Apology. One minute apology. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers. A curious question.
7: You know, Brett, there's a lot of people in
12: our culture today that have friends that are homosexuals, and they have no idea what to say. What kind of advice would you give to the person who has a homosexual friend? What do they say? Well, the first thing that we shouldn't do is make homosexuality the issue in a relationship. Uh, the, the person, their primary need isn't to be converted out of homosexuality into heterosexuality. Their primary need as an unbeliever is to conversion to Christ, yeah. but let's say the conversation gets started. Right, they know you're religious, and they they want to know your views on homosexuality. What what do you say then? Well, in that case, I would say three things to my um, uh, my, my gay friends. Number one, I would say uh, you were not designed for this. You were not designed for this. And and just talk about the natural function of of bodies. Um, I think it I think it's self-evident. I mean, there's there's things that are self-evident. So if I go if I have a key and uh, I, I walk up to a door, and I see a doorknob, uh, door and I also see a trash can, it just is self-evident that that key fits the, the doorknob, that uh, I don't put it in the trash can, right? And so I think there's, when you look at the human body, when you look at the design of men and women, uh, we were designed for one another. We weren't designed for the same gender uh, to function sexually. And so I think that's one of the things I would say, is you weren't designed for you weren't designed for this on a number of levels, not only biologically but psychologically, spiritually. Uh, the second thing I would say is that this will hurt you. This will hurt you, and and this is set out of love, uh, but this this will harm you. And when you look into
10: radio. Join us next time Sunday, two PM or four PM and good luck with Yanti and friends and the VIVLE. Bye for now.
5: The v-